Manifestors, it's all happening. We're back. It's taken months. There have been BTS trials and tribulations, highs, lows, <laughs> false starts, failed recordings. You name it, we've been through Failures it. on Rebecca's part. Uh, well, I would say that some, maybe some- Some stuff has happened. Some, maybe some, some scheduling failures on your part as well. I mean- You guys can make up your own minds yeah, about whose fault I'm it is. I'm sure we'll give you some context in the next hour, hour and a half. We, we don't, don't even know. know. We don't even know. We're so out of shape with recording that this could be it's a wild all, ride. It's all lethal. And we feel like it's our very first podcast once again. I'm feeling nervous. I'm feeling excited. Um, I'm just feeling nervous. Let's get into it. I mean, should it. we? Re I mean, just quick reintro for those that forgot who we are or maybe are tuning yeah, oh, in for the first call, time. Call. I'm Rebecca. Mm -hmm. This is my intrepid co-host, Blair. She's going to introduce yes. herself. She doesn't need a man or a woman. And uh, <laughs> this is Manifest Destiny, the podcast where we talk about history and some other shit, too. Wait, should we just start over? Let's, we should say that closer to the top. I mean, who cares? This is our show. Uh, all right. We can bury <laughs> yeah, the lead. Right. You're right. Let's bury the fuck out of that lead. Okay, let's get into it. Rebecca, what has your life been like the last five months since we recorded an episode? I mean, it simply pales in comparison to your jet-setting travels. Like, the number mm -hmm. of people that have messaged me being like, what is Blair's lifestyle? Is she still employed? Does she have a <laughs> career? Is she just a woman of travel? So mostly my life has been fielding questions about your life. I'm a full-time wedding guest, so that's kind of where I'm at right now. She's not exaggerating. Um, but I'm glad that I'm creating an illusion of fun and drama and not like I'm in crippling credit card debt from yeah. <laughs> going to the weddings of acquaintances. Nobody would be the I wiser. Am. I mean, you've had like family members' weddings. It's been a whole wild ride. I've been all over this great nation, you guys, and and the world, and I have picked up a lot of great ideas. Like, I have a lot of ideas for what we're going to learn this season just based on where I've been lately. Like, just last weekend, I was in Kiowa, South oh, Carolina. been there. And I was thinking, and there's all, yeah, you've been there. A lot of plantation stuff mm. I want to get into, but not today. Not today. That's just a little teaser. <sighs> little teaser. I mean, we are thrilled to be back. We've got, we've just been sitting on IDs. I mean, that's really all I've been up to is just compiling possible IDs. I had to make a spreadsheet to get Blair to basically get her shit together to record. Have I no. written in the spreadsheet yet? No. No, no you haven't. But just knowing that it's there makes me feel That's calm. what I thought. I was like, if she does nothing with this, it will serve as a reminder <laughs> that I've been thinking about it and I'm the backbone of this podcast and maybe she'll feel a true, little true, bit true. guilty. Well, people people know that. Last season, people I had to build a website. The season before, I had to come up with theme music. I mean, who knows what I'll do next season? Maybe we'll have merch. <laughs> you just don't know. But I've really just been devoting myself to my craft, and that craft is podcasting for free. Well, not free. We have I, our beloved sponsor, Anchor, that has provided us all of $10. One drink and in I New mean, York. That's all I have left. And if you think a drink in New York City is only $10, yeah. <laughs> I can do I have I am clearly you. from Connecticut. That was it. We're back. We're back. And yeah, that was okay. my first time being obnoxious about wow. New York City, wow. baby. Four minutes in. In season four. That's all it took. That's all <laughs> it, it took. It took four whole minutes. Um, that one was a joke, though. <laughs> I just want people to know I'm not as bad as they think. I think people know that you are as bad as you think and then some. But go okay, off. Okay, whatever. Whatever, go off. So you want to give the manifestors some like quick wedding highlights of 
your travels? Because I mean, like, you can't bury the lead on like fully going to Africa. Like, I wanted to ask you before oh, yeah. we started recording, but then I wanted to save it for the pod. So, like, how was that experience? Were you a problematic white person or were you respectful? That's the real well, question. Well, I went to a wedding of a Kenyan girl in Kenya that I had never met prior to arriving on the African continent to attend. Very on brand for you. Very on brand. And it was just like, wait a minute, am I a secret billionaire? <laughs> like, like, I was are you? Like, the people are curious. Have I always been like, I don't know, because literally like this girl, just the most unassuming down to earth person. And then just, we're just balling out nine days in Kenya, baby. Wow. <laughs> was really the wedding stupid. nine days or did you extend? The wedding was nine days. We arrived, no, 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 no. Everything was totally planned by her. Wow. Like instead of having a guest book, they had like that just the spreadsheets that people because the spreadsheets were insane it was a 246 person wedding like all these different pieces people coming from six different countries four internal flights like all or so you'd like wake up to a morning from a text that was literally like you are departing on this 15 person airplane to the next location like your flights at 10 15 and then the person next to you would get a text from the wedding planner that was like your flights at 10 30 you're on a 22 person flight from this airport it was wild. So we, yeah, so we went to Nairobi for a couple of days and then we did like five days of six days of safari and then the wedding because you can't really disturb the animals. So you can't, you can't party too hard. So like one of the nights we did a silent disco because the animals got oh God, disturbed by so ruckus, cool. which was so cool. It was also wild because they were like the Maasai, like the natives were there. They had like a jumping competition and stuff. But they were just dying at the silent disco. I'm sure. I'm sure that's the most absurd <laughs> like, thing like, ever. Have you ever been to like one before? We... Oh yeah. Oh, I, I've bucket list to... for me. I've never been to one, and I feel like that's my dream environment to be in a club. Oh my god, it's so fun. Oh, you have to do it. That was definitely the most legitimate silent disco I've ever been to. Like in terms of like they were like legit headsets where you'd be like go on the red channel and everyone was listening to like Dancing Queen, but then like the blue channel was playing like era. Like it was. Wait, just so there's different listening experiences everyone's not automatically listening to the same thing that's so chaotic for you, dancing you, it's very chaotic for dancing but well there's only like there's only two different colors so you can kind of vibe but you but everybody's is lit up so you wow. can just kind of get near the people who are listening to the same oh my god that's so cool it was so cool and then we <laughs> so then after all the safari the the wedding was on like the african savannah and there were like men surrounding the perimeter with rifles in case any animals came like that's how much of like in the savannah it was it was like fully in um fully in the mara like there were like we saw all these elephants on the way to the ceremony like all these like rhinos and stuff and um and then from the from the ceremony we flew to the reception in nairobi which was at this like crazy club that's like all over out of africa which everybody should read um and all of the artwork was like kind of like colonialism but like weaken at it like it was like oh my god remember on the day of the kenyan revolution when our club member got so hammered he drove a jeep into the fence like into the gate like literally gate crashed at his own club while there was violence in the street they were like well we commissioned a painting of that (laughs) and it is cheeky (laughs) so it was wild um but yeah so kenya was amazing went to a really amazing wedding in jamaica Vermont. Um, wow. Where did I go in November? I have. I've had one. I've had one or two weddings a month every month since June. That's so. Wait, you're kidding? <laughs> no, I've been to. Yeah, I've been to ten weddings since this since September. Blair, that's psychotic. 
I know. Like it's, half less really... friends. I really had no idea you were this popular. I, nor did I. And you know what it is? It's not that I'm popular. It's that I'm really great at establishing weak ties, <laughs> like superficial small talk ties. And then I think I you also make a lasting the impression. I feel like I give off the vibe that I'm going to get hammered and make your wedding really fun, which I do yeah. try to do. Yeah. But that's, so that's where I'm at with it. But it, it is, I'm at, I'm in a big lull. So I just, I'm, I feel amazing. Last week I got back from my last wedding until June 4th. Wow. So I've what got two months off. What are you going to do with yourself? Record Manifest I'm gonna Destiny? Pot, yeah, I'm going to record Manifest Destiny. That's my new weekend plan. That's it. Um, I feel like so you've yeah. really figured it out by dating a younger man because you're just extending the wedding phase and I feel no, like Rebecca, I'm firmly in I don't the baby want... phase. Like everyone no, I know no, no, is no, having no, no, babies no, no, no. right now. I don't want to extend the wedding phase. It's really, it's, I mean, and it's, I, I feel terrible because it's like, I do have fun at these events. Have I ever been to an event where alcohol was served and not at the time of my life? The answer to that question is no. <laughs> but like, and like, it's obviously so fun and you're celebrating your friends, but it's just like, I am a shell of a human yeah. being. Like I am so tired. I am so broke. I literally am keeping Rent the Runway in business single-handedly. I Everybody's mean, always like, just, where do you get all these the, outfits? Where's the like con? I feel like you have, you deserve I had it. a burner. I had a burner Rent the Runway account for Kenya. I mean, there were so you, many. You're serving some strong looks. You've had a questionable history, a checkered <laughs> past, if you will, with fashion, but you really have been hitting your stride in the last two years. And Oh, that is so nice, Rebecca. I mean, yeah, I've, I've seen you at your worst, and I really feel like I'm seeing you at your best right now. Like, the Kenya fits were fire. The Kenya fits were fire, but I just ultimately, it's just not sustainable. And it's just crazy because I feel like I've gone through this whole cycle where I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so insane. Where I'm like, oh my God, I love weddings. This is so fun. Like three years ago, I'm like, I want to have the biggest wedding ever. And then I went to so many that I'm like, oh my God, I'm never doing this. Like, this is just so exhausting and crazy. Like, what do you think like, you the ideal with your mom. guest number is? I, I would say like 150. It also just depends because sometimes you'll be at a wedding that's like 150, but they're like, you know, somebody has a huge family. So it's like, I just think that you got to keep a 70 to 30 ratio of like pair, like of like kids and parents. I feel like 30% is too many parents. No, because parents are kind of fun, and it's like sometimes parents like to like get a little freaky, and, I mean, and it true. makes the night more fun. That is like true. nothing, nothing is more fun than when you're like Rebecca's mom was plastic. I mean, that's um, just a Tuesday. <laughs> that's just Tuesday, but I'm sure it'll be good at your wedding if your wedding's on a Tuesday. Um, but yeah, but so, but it's like it's come back around where you're like, oh my god, this is so exciting. Then you're like, no, I'm never doing this. Like I'm going to city hall if I yeah. ever even get married. And now it's come all the way back around where I'm so tired and so broke that I'm like, I'm out for revenge. Yeah. Like when I get married, I'm getting married on the moon. Yeah. And I'm gonna make you RSVP four to six weeks in advance, and there will be no hotels. Like I'm literally just like, yeah, there will be several flights involved. Um, revenge is my like a- only reason I would ever get married. It's just like the amount yeah. of coin I've shelled out for other people's celebrations at this point that I'm like, maybe I want to cash in at some point. Like, it's not for love. It's a decent it's for reason money. to do anything. Revenge is a great reason to do anything. Yeah. You know what I mean? I would say do it. And yeah. it's also just like, yeah, exactly. Like when people are like, oh, I, I have to now get this person a gift that I spent so, like flew to your wedding. Yeah. Got a dress for your wedding. Let's be honest. Rented a dress for your wedding, yeah. but I bought a set. I bought accessories. It's just like I'm sorry, mommy is tired. I cannot give you any more money. If I had money, I would put gas in my car. It's, it's just lunch. a simple return on investment. Like I, I just feel so that true. I am 
giving up on what is owed to me by being as anti-wedding mm-hmm. as I am. That said, I'm still never going to do it, but like, I don't know. I really want to let our manifestors know that I have a strong working theory that Rebecca has been married for <laughs> two or three years. Can you imagine? I really, I really do think that you are married. I mean, I would save money if I was married. I just said to... The IRS just cleaned me out. I'm like, I'll do whatever it takes to pay less taxes at this point. So if I have to get well, married, maybe. You're like, I'll do whatever it takes except, except marry the love of my life. Except marry my long-term <laughs> eight, ten-year partner. I don't know how long we've been together at this point. Yeah. We're, Math is not your strong suit. Never been, nor is like <laughs> grounding myself in a temporal reality. It's all just nebulous, baby. So true. so true. That's that's really what brings us all here. Yeah. Is that you and I are experiencing the Alamo like it happened this morning. Wow. Is that what you landed on for today? Oh yeah, the Alamo. We're gonna wow. talk about the Alamo guys and Never I am forget. so excited. Is that a good transition? Yeah, or I let's wanna go. hear more about your life. I mean, there's What's really new? not much going on, but we, I mean I was gonna say a quick shout out. We do have some manifestor babies on the way. Um, oh my gosh, that's right. Brittany is fully expecting a young manifester at the end of June. Shout oh, out to Brittany. She might do an ID Can at you... some point. If you looked at the spreadsheet, you'd know she's very interested in doing an Area 51 ID. But since you didn't, I doubt you saw that. <laughs> I did not see that, no. Yep. Not even one. And in late breaking news, just broken yesterday, our uh, our OG manifester, Jen, is expecting a... Shut a up. Hop. Oh my God. What? Wow. Congrats, Just Jen. Just broke the news oh to you God, on Manifest so Destiny. Great. I hope she's cool with it. Ryan announced I got it a text. on Instagram, so I think it's cool. <laughs> I got to text Elizabeth right now. She's going to die. Yeah. And um, she simply is like the most, like her baby bump is not a thing. Her baby bump is like what I look like right now after I've eaten lunch two hours ago. Like, I mean, Jen, my dad's nickname for Jen in high school, shout out to the four people who see this podcast, but as you know, Jack would always call Jen uh, chicken legs. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> she is just so tiny. She's a small gal. But she's having a gal, she's, too. So we're just like... She's a bit... Gals having gals? Gals having gals. Oh, my God. Yep. Wow, that's so exciting. And, yeah, I mean, I feel like we should not go into so specifically people's names as we are right now. But I've I've seen some baby photos as of late of some manifestors. Oh, yeah. I mean, shout out to Kyla. Mm-hmm. Kyla. Big shout out to Kyla. Big shout out to Kyla. Hannah is super cute. We're not using last names, so I think this is fine. Um, who, what other manifestor babies do we have? Well, well, um, Katie, if you're listening, I literally thought that you were nine months pregnant again oh. somehow. <laughs> I do One not think friends- Katie is a manifestor, but like, yeah, you did have a scare that Katie was Irish twinning it. Well, one of our friends had a baby nine months ago, and she posted something like nine months in, nine months out, but it was a picture of her nine months pregnant. Classic Katie. Like, but I was really like, wow, time is really a flat circle. I can't believe enough time. I feel like Katie just had that baby. That should really tell you something about where I'm at um, as I record from my basement apartment. Great. Props to you guys. Props to you guys for being so established. So established. Every time someone tells me they're pregnant, I'm like, is this a clinic trip or something we should be excited about? Like, I just <laughs> don't know. I'm like, teen pregnancy. That's where my brain goes every single time. So arrested development's a real thing. It afflicts some of us more than others. Might be, I mean, I'm 31 <laughs> now. Like, I've turned the corner. Like, 30, 30 was all right. 31 was like a reckoning. It was like, this is a real thing, aging. Like, this is not going to stop. I look like shit. I don't love it. <laughs> but you know what? You don't look like shit. But what I, what I will say is super interesting the last couple of years, and I am, again, several months younger than Rebecca. So wow. not to rub it wow. in, but I am not yet Weird 31. flex, because you're only <laughs> Weird literally flex, like five months younger okay. than me, but whatever. 
Um, six months. So anyway, math um, is not my thing. But, it doesn't exist. But <laughs> that's always been the case. Um, but I will say one thing that's weird, other than just changes to your physical body, is just like the pivot of the media away from catering to you. <gasps> Right. Which is just so shakes me sometimes. Like the way that like music is marketed and like clothes are marketed. It's like, yeah, no, like no one's asking me to do this. I just got an ad, targeted ad for a Netflix documentary about like the rise and fall of Abercrombie and Fitch. And I was like, are we old enough that they're making a documentary? I watched that last night and it was absolutely I mean, I cannot wait. We should probably do an idea on American brand Abercrombie and Fitch. But I just felt old as hell being like, wow, I'm getting marketed like something like this happened simply decades ago. And like, yes, it did actually happen decades ago, but I still feel so connected to youth culture that when I realize it's no longer being catered to me personally and that Gen Z is just like speaking an entirely different language, it it's a shock to the system. Yes. And it's also interesting when you think back to like all those articles about like millennials are ruining divorce and like millennial yeah. pink and millennial this and that. It's not about but us I anymore. Feel like that was it's not about us anymore. And I'm just ready to to take my place at the conveyor line <laughs> and just punch that clock. Oof. You know what I mean? I've taken this turn where I'm just like, yeah, it's, it's not about me anymore. It's about, it's about the future. It's, Jen's it's about baby. Yeah, it's literally about like all of the baby manifestors, the next gen. <laughs> the next gen, literally. Well, I think the best part about having a history podcast is there's more of it every day. Every day, baby. All right, now that we're half an hour into this preamble, why don't you uh, mm-hmm. tell us about the Alamo and why we shouldn't okay, forget right. it? I am so fascinated to see how you edit that intro because we covered a lot the whole human experience i mean i told um, you i specifically said we had to start with light ids because we were going to do this so maybe i won't cut any well, of it you just never know i didn't even get the opportunity to tell you guys about how i'm living in a subterranean yeah blair and i are both recording from basements basement. right now like come yeah, for us. And I, it feels like our next form it feels like but, my final so anyway. form and my er form <laughs> has been in a basement <laughs> Well, that's true. Rebecca does love her basement. That was a pretty big issue growing up, Rebecca leaving her basement. Okay, so anyway, let's get into it, guys, because I want to talk about the Alamo, and I don't know how it did not occur to me to do this sooner, because it is so good, and the drama is so real, and it really gets into, like, issues of, like, statehood identity that, like, maybe in the Northeast we don't have as much. So it's all fascinating stuff to unpack, and I will just start by saying that I did go to the Alamo when I was 15 I years old. I surely remember this. Shout out to Claire. Shout out to Claire. Thank you for taking me to San Antonio. Uh, love the Riverwalk. Love the Alamo. And it just didn't hit me when I was 15, but I, like, remember taking pictures of, like, the Connecticut flag because they were, like memorials for every state that like wow. lost a soldier to the Alamo and I was like look my state shed blood for the Alamo I didn't take it in Rebecca <laughs> I, I wasn't thinking about this iconic last stand and how these men willingly gave their lives for like a notion of statehood it's crazy you think people are out here dying for Connecticut they're not no <laughs> they're not so anyway let's get into it the Alamo is pretty like inextricable from the like media images and like hubbub around it because there's all these famous Mm. movies famous depictions of it but 
I'm I'm happy to report that like the real story is like both better and worse than you think it is. Like there's a lot of stuff that like isn't as good as you think it is. But let's just get into it. So the year is 1863, um, and the Texas Revol Revolution is going on. So if you will remember, you might not because history starts the day you join the United States, as we all know. Damn straight. But Texas actually started out as a part of Mexico, Mexico, at this time. And Mexico had abolished slavery in the year 1830. But chattel slavery and slavery as we knew it in the American South was a very important thing to Texas ranchers, all of their productivity and like resources were centered around slavery. So as soon as tech, as soon as slavery became outlawed in Mexico and that started being enforced, Texas was like, we need to be our own thing. We're going to be, you know, we're going to be the state of Texas, like independent from the United States. And at this time, the United States and Mexico had a very tenuous treaty that was basically based around, they were just basically being like, we won't take Texas but we're not going to help you hold Texas either. But we're not going to send reinforcements for Texas to leave because it was kind of prior to Texas being conceived as a potential state for the United States. So it was more just like almost a borderlands, like the way you think of like the Sudetenland in like Germany. That's kind of a deep World War yeah, II wow. cut. Wow. <laughs> or sorry, not this. No, the Rhineland, the Rhineland. Sorry, World a War deep I. and incorrect World War II cut. Oh. No, no, no. R the Rhineland is when Hitler invaded that. That's when they were like, oh, it's going down. All right. Um, this is not a European history podcast. It sure isn't. Um, so anyway, so Texas at this time was kind of like this border area, but there was obviously still tons of westward expansion happening. Um, and there were many places in the United States territory to still expand to. So people that were kind of choosing to Texas we're choosing to be in like a lawless place. Like it kind of was like Mexico was like just starting to enforce its laws, but it didn't really belong to anything. And it kind of immediately had its own identity. Um, and we'll get into that later, but it is important to think that like people from Texas, and this is still true, like thought of and think of themselves as like Texans first and Americans Texas second. Forever. Texas forever. I didn't think we were going to go straight there, Rebecca, but now that we have, now that Friday Night Lights has entered the chat, it definitely is worth saying that, yeah, Dylan, Texas is a pretty good depiction of what it's actually like. And I'm saying that as a story. No, I'm just kidding. But, You're not kidding um, at all. <laughs> um, okay, but before I start, I do just want to say, this is just what I wanted to read before I began, and I also wanted to give my hearty recommendation of Larry McMurdy's book, Lonesome Dove, which is an absolutely amazing, like, 900-page book about Texas ranchers huh. having a cattle drive to Montana that I read a couple Not years boring. ago. Not boring? Not boring, and he won, like, a Pulitzer Prize for it, and there's, like, a wild, like, PBS 1983 miniseries of, like, every famous person imaginable in it. Highly recommend wow. looking it up. Okay. So, anyway... So, so Larry McBurdy, who's written so much about Texas, he says, what my whole body of work says is that Texans spent so long getting past the frontier experience because that experience is so overwhelmingly powerful. 
Imagine yourself as a small, hopeful immigrant family, alone on the staked plains with the Comanche and the Kiowa still on the loose. The power of such experience will not sift out of the descendants of that venturer in one generation and produce Middletown. Elements of that primal venturing will surely inform several generations. Wow. And then, just going to follow that up, that this is Conrad Hilton, who was a Texan in his first, like the first Hilton Hotel was in Texas. And he said, there's a vastness here. And I believe people that are born here breathe that vastness into their soul. They dream big dreams and think big thoughts because there is nothing to hem them in. And I've spent a little bit of time in Texas. I've been to Austin, Dallas, Houston. I've been to like big cities and I've spent a little bit of time in like the West country. And it is just true. Like it's wild, the diversity of natural resources in the United States. But like you are chilling in Texas. You can see like four miles ahead. Like, and it's just the most self-contained place in the world. Like it's the center of the universe if you live in Texas. So like I totally get how it's always kind of had this isolationist bent. And that's important to know going into this ID. And like my, I, I think over the six months that we didn't record, I forgot how to do research. So everybody just buckle up because it's not going to be that. She's got good. Wikipedia but... on standby. It's fine. <laughs> I like have the Wikipedia article like bullet pointed in a Word document. Like that's Blair, how that's I went how about That's how we've always done research. Don't lie that's to the manifestors. Right. Like Maybe I'm just remembering how to do research. So anyway... Um, basically there are, so I'm going to refer to them as instead of Texans, Texians, because I guess that was the verbiage of the day, but Texians had driven all Mexican troops out of Mexican, Texas. So we won't get into like the borderland situation. Like basically you just need to know that Mexico was trying to, Mexico was technically already had Texas, but they were kind of trying to reassert their claim. And interestingly enough, they were like citing the American Constitution, like Articles of Confederation, and like were trying to maul themselves after like the way that the American colonies federated the states and like started having everybody pay taxes and like participate in society. Mexico together. was? Mexico was like modeling cool. that after the United States, yeah, the Republic. Can you um, give us a year? 1836. 1836. Okay. So this is about six years after slavery was outlawed okay. in Mexico, but everybody in Texas was just kind of doing their own thing. But like Mexico was trying to like bring down the hammer on it and be like, okay, like you actually have to stop having slaves. And Texas was revolting. Um, so basically, the um, there's Davy Crockett is a major wow. player in the story. Yes. So this is the whole reason Davy Crockett is famous. And then I just also want to shout out James Bowie and William B. Travis because they also um, were the co-commanders of this whole um, operation. But Davy Crockett is really only famous for the Alamo. And, like, when you research him, it's just, like, no man has better PR than Davy Crockett. It's always, like, he took down 16 Native Americans with his bare hands, like, verified by no one. <laughs> like, it's always just, like, what? Um, but basically, he was kind of like a frontiersman and, like, a big deal in Tennessee. And he ran for Congress, lost his congressional run, and his, like, very famous quote was you may all go to hell and I will go to Texas <laughs> because he was like if you guys can't handle this I know where my talents are needed <laughs> and it's in a lawless society um 
So basically, there was an Alamo, it was called the Alamo Mission in outside San Antonio, which at the time was just a trading post. And Texian forces had taken it over and it was their last stronghold in the region. Mexico had taken over everything else. And um, Mexico is outnumbering them six to one, just in in terms of like beliefs, in terms of troops and soldiers, it's like 10 to one. It's like something really wild. Um, it's just a huge no win battle. And they are, they're like, have garrisoned this old Spanish mission called the Alamo. And it's interesting because I'm sure lots of people have seen the Alamo and pictures of it. And you're, and even when I was there, I wasn't really thinking about this, but it is just very much not like a military fortress. Like it is a mission building. Like it's like a stone wall. Like it's built to like withhold, it's built to withstand like attacks from like natives and like Comanches. But like it's not built to withhold attacks from like people with guns, actual armies. Like it was just never gonna go well as soon as they were like, no, we're keeping all our supplies here and like we're just not ever gonna get rid of it. Um, so basically on February 23rd, March, um, of 1936, about 1500 Mexicans march into San Antonio, um, and take a step to overtake the city, quote unquote, again, it's still kind of a trading outpost and the, um, the Alamo is the focal point for everybody else. And, or for, <laughs> by everybody else, I mean the other side of the war, <laughs> the Texians. Um, so there's about 10 days of skirmishes around the area and they kind of keep retreating, retreating, retreating to the Alamo building. Um, and William Travis is writing letters pleading for more men and supplies from Texas, um, to Texas from the United States. And they got less than a hundred people in reinforcements. So we're talking about like wild, wild numbers here. Like this is 1500 to like a couple hundred men and the Mexican men are much better armed. And Santa Ana, the president general of Mexico, um, was like notoriously cruel. And that comes into play later, but he was just like basically a psychopath general. Um, but basically he's taking no prisoners. And I mean that in a literal sense, like people would surrender and then he'd just cut their throats. Like they, or like people would surrender and then we'd be like, okay, we'll bring you to our general. And then as soon as Santa Ana saw them, he'd be like, kill them. So this is like a 10 day I mean, siege. Respect. And then in the earth, I mean, respect question mark. But in the early morning hours of March 6th, um, the Mexican army advances on the Alamo. They know that this is kind of the last stand. There's nowhere else for them to go. And after two, att- and so as soon as they start making this advance, every single person in this building, in this garrisoned area knows that they're going to die if they stay. So, like, a couple people leave, but it's more like the vibe is just, like, let's die for Texas. Like, there's worse things to die for. And um, so between five to seven Texians, like, surrendered or, like, ran out. And don't worry, they were quickly executed (laughs) by the Mexicans for cowardice. So they might as well have just stayed. Um, And then, like, a couple of, like, non-combatants, like, literally, like, women, children that just happened to be there were sent to a different place. Um, and told to like, they're like, just stay here, but also like observe what's about to happen to these people. Be prepared to leave. Yeah. Who like, but also being like very much in the vein of like the movie 300 being like, oh, like I'll keep you alive so you can tell them how we slayed all of them. Like that was Santa Ana's vibe. 
Wow. Um, so basically, all of them die. And, you know, it's crazy. I This is still a pretty short ID, but what I've realized is I really don't have passion for the minutia of battles like i was like reading it trying to write it down just be like i uh i feel like this has an ending if this was a podcast done by two men of a similar age we'd have passion for the details of war but we don't but here's what i'm saying we don't and the reason why as a writer and as a reader i know that there is an outcome to a battle i know that you are just wasting time you're wasting pages by not so it's masturbatory i don't care some trouble give me the climax (laughs) they all die. The climax is basically Davy Crockett, his body is discovered surrounded by 17 Mexicans. Wow. Like that's the extent to which everybody was like, we're going down with the ship. And again, that Davy Crockett thing might not be true at all. <laughs> like it is not technically um, verified in a Wikipedia. Not verified in any way. But he, I, like I said, Davy Crockett has good PR. So um, they let a couple people go. Like they let one of the guy's slaves go and were like, hey, like go tell people you don't like being a slave. And if Texas was part of Mexico, you wouldn't have to be. And then they let another woman go and be like, tell them about how we took no prisoners. Like this is the Mexican army saying like, tell them Santa Ana is a psycho. And they thought that spreading that message as it would in most cases would make everybody not want (laughs) to fuck with Mexico. But it actually resulted in a crazy rush of people joining the Texian army and the Republic of Texas ultimately being declared after just a couple more battles because there was such an outpouring to remember the Alamo. In every subsequent battle, people were like screaming, remember the Alamo as they were killing people. And like Santa Ana was kind of trying to downplay. He was like, oh, 600 Texians had been killed and only 70 Mexican soldiers were killed. But it's actually closer to like 400 to 600 Mexicans died. So it's like they went down with a fight. Like the numbers are again, really not well recorded. But this was, you know, one of the rare cases in history where it was like very few brave men standing up to an overwhelming force, absolutely knowing that they were facing down their deaths and dying for the cause of like the Republic of Texas and Texas being declared free and independent state, which did end up happening just a little bit later and in large part due to their sacrifice. And again, only of all these hundreds of men, that were defending the Alamo, only five to seven of them surrendered and were again immediately shot and killed. Um, But the Texans' bodies were stacked and burned, like so no one even knows how many there were. And like one guy got a proper burial, no one even knows why, but like basically that's it. And then, so despite that, Despite the losses in Mexico, the Mexican army still outnumbers the Texian army by a wild um, ratio. And Santa Ana assumed that the knowledge of the disparity in troop numbers and the fate of the Texan soldiers would quell the resistance, but it obviously did not. Um, So everyone flocked to join Sam Houston's army. Um, Sam Houston, who later became a senator um, and founded the city of Houston, obviously. So after the Alamo and all this bloodshed, April 21st, this is just like a month and a half later, there's the Battle of San Jacinto. Um, and that was one of the most notable instances of everybody saying, remember the Alamo and saying, you know, um, and Santa Ana, the crazy guy, the crazy Mexican guy, was captured the following day 
and said to Houston, that man may consider himself born to no common destiny who has conquered the Napoleon of the West, and now it remains for him to be generous to the vanquished. So he's basically saying, like, you should be nice to me. And Houston was like, you should have remembered that at the Alamo. (laughs) Like, that's how much we love the Alamo. Um, And, yeah, basically, this was kind of Mexico's way of, like, hopping aboard the Manifest Destiny train was by, like, annexing Texas and trying to make it a part of their um, republic. And another thing I just wanted to throw out there, number one, come and take it is a phrase really commonly associated with the Alamo. When I was at the Alamo, you know, however many years ago, like, all of the merch was, like, Davy Crockett saying, like, you may go to hell and I will go to Texas. And then, like, just pictures of a cannon saying, come and take it. And in a lot of... um, in a lot of the movies and depictions, it will have Davy Crockett or someone else saying, like, come and take the Alamo then, like, kind of just being, like, a stand-and-fight vibe. Um, actually, that is battle is that's associated with the battle that had happened earlier on in the year. So come and take it doesn't originate from then. And it also just doesn't originate from the Texas Revolution at, Revolution at all. Like, the first use of that phrase is from... The Battle of Thermopylae, which, if you'll remember, is what 300 is based on. Yeah. Um, And in the movie 300, he says, like, oh, you want our weapons? Like, they're like, lay down your weapons, and the Spartans are like, come and take them. Um, That's, that's like, the first usage of that phrase. And it's cropped up throughout history of when just men getting real territorial. Um, But, yeah, so Alamo can't really lay claim to that phrase either. But it really turned the tides of the Mexican Revolution, it, it, or sorry, the Texas Revolution, and it also made people join the army that might not have otherwise because people were so horrified by how many men had died and, like, the cruelty with which they died. And also, um, I just want to throw in, because this is just a fun fact, it's a very fun fact, but... Did you know that Six Flags, the amusement park, is named Stop. after the six flags that have been flown over Texas in its lifetime? You're kidding. So, like, the Spanish flag. Did the Six Mexican Flags originate flag, in the, Texas? The Republic of Texas. So, yeah, the first one is in Texas. And then, like, when. Wow. But it, the original name of the amusement park was Six Flags over Texas. And then when they franchised it, they just took out the other part. Wow. I know. But I had no that idea. Wild? What a fun fact. Yeah, so I've known that fun fact for a while, and I've oh, I tell people all the time, but I've never had a platform such as this to tell yeah, people. Yeah, so you've never had twenty engaged listeners. Twenty engaged listeners that are now going to take that with them to their graves. Wow, wow, yeah, amazing. Yeah, so that's all I really have for you. Sorry, well, we're getting a little scatters. And no, but, I mean I learned something important about myself, which is that I don't like reading about battles. <laughs> yeah, or relating that information to, to other people. So whatever. We never purported ourselves to be a war-positive podcast. Give yeah. peace a chance. We're not going to hear from our sponsors and be back in a minute to really – I mean, we've really buried the lead here, but, like, we are recording on 420, and I'm about to drop some Oh yeah, pretty real 420 knowledge on you as the uh, podcast consummate expert on this subject. So stick around. It's going to be a good one. Love that. I'll take us back. Rebecca's about to teach us about the origins of the illegal 
illegalization of marijuana, which I'm fascinated by. And I will say the only basis of my knowledge is the first six minutes of the movie Pineapple <laughs> Express. So I can't wait to hear this. <laughs> and I can't remember the first six minutes of Pineapple Express because I've always been stoned when I've seen that movie. Sure, so. sure. I can't wait for you to tell me if this is okay. Take it away. True to the movie. Take it away. So I am here today to tell you about the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, and I put the emphasis on the H because it was spelled M-A-R-I-H-U-A-N-A because this was a time when people weren't familiar with the fact that you don't pronounce a J in Spanish as marijuana. So <laughs> marijuana, that is how the white 1930s people spelled it. And it turns out that cannabis, which I will be referring to it for most of this podcast, is as American as apple pie. The presence <laughs> of cannabis. Scorching hot take from Rebecca. Scorching hot take, but it is like one of our primary crops. Like, shout out to hemp. It's wow. really the cornerstone of all of this. Like, your mind is about to be blown. Like, you know I love a conspiracy theory. I went into this thinking, like, I love a legal marijuana experience. And came out of this being like, this is another conspiracy. Like, I tricked myself into another conspiracy theory. So cannabis has, like, deep roots in American history. Predates the Revolution. And way back in 1619, good old King James tells the Jamestown colonists that if they are going to be a part of the crown, they need to step up their export game. So he instructed that all Jamestown's landowners started cultivating hemp. So there was a hundred um, hemp endeavors that there were being exported to England. And the primary use for this hemp was rope. Hemp is super strong. It's very fibrous. Our guy, George Washington, OG president, grew hemp as one of the three primary crops produced on Mount Vernon. So Have you seen I... in Days and Confused when they're like, Martha, where he's like, George Washington used to grow this. And Martha was a cool, cool lady. Martha would just be like, yeah, go for it, George. I mean, Martha's on my list of potential IDs because she was a cool, cool lady. Okay, like, all right. Take it away. I do Sorry. love Lisa don't Martha me, Washington. Don't let me derail you. So in the 1840s, this Irish physician and pharmacologist, William O'Shaughnessy, who also, side note, his research like led to the invention of IVs, so this guy really did a lot, but he basically began touting the therapeutic use of cannabis um, after having seen its widespread use in Eastern cultures. So he basically brings cannabis to the West. And by the 1850s, medical cannabis became readily available to purchase in most American pharmacies. And by 1853, it had started being rebranded as recreational cannabis, and it was classified as a very fashionable narcotic, like as mm -hmm. opposed to opium, which was a little bit more sleepy. This was more like what the, you know, intellectual upper class was into. So still is. still is, baby. So by the 1880s, hashish parlors were like on point with opium dens. You could find them in every major city on the East Coast. It's estimated that by the 1880s, there were over 500 uh, hashish parlors in New York City alone. So New York City, shout out, was always been down for the green. Always been down um, for the green. Always And been another down. crazy thing is like, Weed isn't technically legal in New York yet. Like, selling it isn't without a medical card. But it's just weird because cops have just stopped reading. I don't know. There's just so many dispensaries. I mean, the last time I was in New York, wild. there was, like, a, a van driving around marked 
Yeah, being like buy your weed here, and I was like, last yeah. time I checked, it was not legal here. No, like, this it's is crazy. shocking. There's dispensaries every step of the way. Yeah, but like, it's not, it's not legal. They're basically just like, I just think the cops are like, we have bigger fish to fry. Sure, but I mean, in 1853, it was like Amsterdam. Like, you could just go into Love a hashish that. parlor and live your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's actually a 1883 article that was run in Harper's that was like describing a hashish house as like the hot thing. Like, this was Dumbo of the time, and it was like they quoted it like the better classes are patroning these establishments. It talked about a similar parlors in Boston and Philadelphia and Chicago. So, like, very much part of the culture in the late 1800s. So that's cool. But about around the same time people decided (laughs) that cannabis was chic as hell, the states were like, "Mm, we don't love this vibe. Like, just like we're gearing up for prohibition. The individual states? Well, it started off as that, like, it was a state's issue and then becomes obviously a federal issue. Um, But it basically started with these so-called poison laws, which were to basically regulate all sales of pharmaceuticals. Because up until this point... People were just selling shit in pharmacies with, like, no labels. They were putting undisclosed narcotics. I mean, these are the good old days where you just, like, get cocaine and cough syrup and nobody was the wiser. My favorite thing about America is, like, if you go anywhere else in the world, they're like, oh, the pharmacy. And in America, you're like, let's go to the drugstore. Yeah. You want to get some drugs? Come on down to CVS. (laughs) We got them. Yeah. And that's our legacy. So, like, these poison laws really weren't intended to, like, cut back on drugs. Mm -hmm. They were more intended to, like, make sure that people weren't just, like, putting miscellaneous things in pharmaceutical products that were then being used to treat ailments. So, fair enough. Like, poison laws make it seem like it's a big, big deal. But it was basically just to make sure, like, the labeling was correct. And they specifically would label things poison if it was being prescribed or it was being sold without a prescription from a pharmacist. So this is kind of like how marijuana starts getting labeled a poison is because it was sold without a prescription and people were like, well, you need to like indicate that a pharmacist hasn't prescribed this. So it was kind of like a catch-all term, Mm -hmm. but it spurred this whole like reconsideration of cannabis and its effects. So by 1905, the U.S. Department of Agriculture lists 29 states that had some sort of cannabis law in effect. And that law can be as arbitrary as you have to label it to, like, we consider this a poison. And those states were North Carolina, Ohio, Wisconsin, Louisiana, Vermont, Maine, Montana, and D.C. And Wisconsin and Louisiana at this point were the only two states that required a prescription to buy cannabis. So up until this point, 1905, you can still in most states buy cannabis outside of a pharmacy without a prescription, but they were adding additional labeling to it to make sure you knew you were getting something that had like some, you know, I hesitate to use the word psychedelic because you really have to have some pretty good, strong stuff. And I don't think anything in 1905 was near (laughs) enough to cause anyone to have a hallucination or a psychedelic experience, but enough to make you feel good. Um, In 1906, (laughs) Congress passed the Pure Food and Drug Act, which required that, again, certain drugs, including cannabis, were accurately labeled. So just kind of doubling down. This is like the advent of the FDA and all this stuff. Um, 1910 is when we start getting into more criticism about the narcotic angle and people started to try and identify like loopholes in these poison laws of which there were many. So that led to further regulation of cannabis. Uh, Massachusetts ramped up its regulation in 1911, New York in 1914, Maine in 1914. 
New York really started ramping up under the town's Boylan Act, which was like targeting specifically habit-forming drugs. And cannabis was like tentatively classified as a habit-forming drug. And that basically just restricted the sale and prohibited refills. Um, and it also prohibited ref- uh, sale to people that had a documented habit, which I think is like probably a good thing. Like they were monitoring like people that were maybe a little more off the wagon than the people that were just going to a hashish parlor on a Saturday night, the people that were like, I am waking and baking. They're like, maybe not. You shouldn't do this. Um, Ironically, California was the first Western state to regulate cannabis when they passed their Poison Act in 1907. Uh, That was went on to be amended in 1909, 1911, and 1913, which ultimately in 1913 declared, quote, extracts, tinctures, or other narcotic preparations of hemp or loco weed as it was called at the time <laughs> which is how i'm now exclusively referring exclusively referring to loco hey weed. you want to you know go ahead a little hit of that loco weed before dinner yes <laughs> yes i do so california was like the first to classify on the west as the uh extracts tinctures etc of that loco weed as a misdemeanor so hilarious because california is obviously very pro now um In 1914, one of the first cannabis drug raids took place in the Mexican-American neighborhood of Sonora Town outside of Los Angeles, Um, and they raided two different gardens, confiscated a wagon load of cannabis, so a fair amount. And this basically, at this point, becomes very much an issue associated with Mexican-Americans and Mexican immigrants, so... In 1920, following the outbreak of the Mexican Revolution, which was Mexico's attempt to overthrow a dictator. Wow, I can't believe we have so much overlap. I know, I know. Even though it's almost 100 years apart. Classic. So following the outbreak of the Mexican Revolution, there's an influx of Mexican immigrants coming into the U.S. The Mexican immigrants were very much accustomed to smoking a little bit of marijuana after a long day of work, which, like, who can blame them? And the Americans And they are working in the goddamn, like... This is, yeah. We're talking about manual labor. We're talking about unsettled land in America. It's so not easy. do what you got to do at the end of the day. Your exactly. back's hurting like nothing like a little analgesic cannabis to take the edge off. <laughs> it was also cheaper than alcohol. And we also have prohibition, which is going into effect in 1920. So this is like really the alternative measure for taking a load off after a long day of labor. So who can blame them? Um under the Harrison Narcotics Act of 1914, marijuana was not classified as a major drug. So under the Harrison Narcotics Act, drugs like opium and heroin, I mean, like, obviously, were like classified drugs. as don't fuck with these things. But marijuana was not included in that. So that was, like, another affirmation that this really wasn't that habitual and that stressful. But everything changes in the 1930s. So there are two big things that go on here. The first is that the F, uh, the government sets up the Federal Bureau of Narcotics to basically police drug sale and drug use in the U.S. It's established, and this guy, Harry J. Anslinger, who was born May 20th. Is that a Gemini or a no? That is right on the old cusp, but mm-hmm. I would ultimately classify that as a Taurus. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Harry is just a narc at his core. This man just mm-hmm. like woke up and chose to ruin everyone's lives. Yeah. Gemini, so, say what you want about a Gemini. They are not narcs. Not a narc. Yeah. So Taurus I was a little worried. I was like 520. Tor- okay. Taurus. A, the thesis of this podcast is that Taurus men must be stopped. 
Tauruses are narcs. Sorry if you're a Taurus listener, but you might be a narc. We're almost, we're literally entering Taurus season right now. Wow. Tomorrow is the first day. Wow. We're 21. Well, so 420 you know, is the glorious blaze out of Aries. <laughs> and then starting tomorrow, it's all back to work. Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've kind of loved Aries season. We'll get to it. But like, <laughs> I've been feeling it. So. Yes, Rebecca. Yes. Anslinger is the worst. He basically begins his whole like campaign as, uh, I'm going to call it the FBN, so I don't have to say Federal Bureau of Narcotics every time. He basically sure. like begins his FBN career by like campaigning against cannabis consumption. He basically, with no evidence, alleges that there's an increase of people using cannabis and he's super worried about it. He ends up roping an FDR and being like, FDR, we got to do something about this, and starts petitioning in 1935 for the U.S. to adopt a Uniform State Narcotic Act, which would basically regulate most things classified as a narcotic. There was also a rise in anti-cannabis propaganda in the 1930s, which culminated in the OG dare movie Reefer Madness. And unbeknownst <laughs> to me, Reefer Madness came out in 1936. And I watched some of it today, and it is high comedy, no pun intended. Like, you absolutely, my recommendation for the day is to go to YouTube and watch some of the 1936 seminal classic Reefer Madness. I mean, it's all on YouTube? It's all on YouTube, the whole thing. We're talking like black and white, some voiceover, some silence, just watching. At one point, like, it's talking about how it makes you more like sexually promiscuous and it's like a man coming home and finding his wife making out with someone else and like beating her. I mean, it's just wild. It's a wild ride. Highly recommend. Just even for like the opening preamble where they talk about like some things in this documentary might shock you and that is because we have to convey how shocking this is. It's just hilarious. So (laughs) I was always under the impression Reefer Madness came out in like the 60s as like a Stop doing so many drugs, teens. But no, it came out in the tender year of 1936 before we actually had hard legislation in place prohibiting using marijuana. So classic. Something I learned. So the main reason, though, this is just like background. The main reason that we have a long storied history of outlawing cannabis is because of hemp and paper. So... Mm-hmm. Previous to this, in the 1800s, something was invented called the decorticator. And this is basically an agricultural tool that strips the bark or skin off plants. And it basically made it so hemp was suddenly a very viable alternative to paper pulp for making paper. And the newspaper industry doesn't love this, specifically William Randolph Hearst, mm-hmm. father of Patty Hearst, not, fa- not father, grandfather. grandfather. Grandfather of Patty Hearst. Granzaddy. Like, he founded that dynasty. Live for that. We should, he should get his own ID. He probably should. But if you're an OG fan of this podcast, you'll know that one of our early IDs is on Patty Hearst. So shout out to Patty, (laughs) you true queen. I'm sure she was very (laughs) pro-cannabis, unlike her grandfather. Well, she was engaged to a man named Alan Weed. Never Never forget. forget. (laughs) Never forget Alan Weed. Never forget the Alamo and never forget Alan Weed. Those are my two... That's the big takeaway of this episode. (laughs) Yes. So William Randolph Hearst, rich man, newspaper tycoon, and like any good tycoon, has invested in timber holdings to fund the creation of paper that then becomes his newspaper. He realizes that hemp is going to be a cheaper, more sustainable, more easily grown alternative to Mm -hmm. cutting down a bunch of trees. And he's not about that. 
So he goes to all of his fellow rich friends, including Andrew Mellon, who is now sitting as Secretary of the Treasury and is the wealthiest man in the U.S. And Andrew Mellon had heavily invested in the DuPonts, and the DuPonts had recently invested in this brand new synthetic fiber nylon, which was also a competitor of hemp. So you get Andrew Mellon, William Randolph Hearst, and the DuPonts all getting together being like, hemp is a problem. It's threatening our various industries. We can't let this happen. So they start backing this Uniform State Narcotic Act. And it ends up that the DuPont lawyers are the ones that draft the Marijuana Tax Act, which is just a crazy conflict of interest. And the American Medical Association actually opposed their measure. So I'll take it one step back. At this point, the government did not have enough control to federally criminalize cannabis. But what they did have control to do was tax it. Uh, so they're like, we're just going to tax the hell out of hemp and marijuana products and make it so nobody can afford this. And this was basically come up by the DuPont, DuPont lawyers. The AMA opposes this, being like the tax is going to be mostly opposed on prescribing physicians, and that's not fair to the physicians. Mm-hmm. And this is a medical tool. And there, the AMA's counsel, William Creighton Woodward, who is a king for the cause, his birthday is December 11th. Is he a Sag? Sag, Sag energy. Sag energy. So our king, William Creighton Woodward, was like, this ah, is terrible. Guess. He was fun. He was direct. He was bold. Yeah. He was the life he of was the bold. party. He was passionate. I mean, he went up against the DuPont lawyers and was like, he you're doing this basically to like – advance your own business interests and that is like deeply not okay he -hmm. also cast a lot of doubt on these dupont fronted claims that cannabis caused addiction violence overdosage which has all been disproven but at the time nobody had and all still persists like yeah piss off a man who owns every newspaper you know what i'm saying good luck (laughs) to you because these things will stay in the vernacular i've seen succession i know how it goes (laughs) The yeah. other big point that William Creighton Woodward made was that they were using the Spanish word marijuana in the bill and not cannabis. And up until that point, most Americans understood the drug to be cannabis and not the Spanish word marijuana. So a lot of the people that were stakeholders and basically having the tax really be detrimental to their industry didn't realize what they were losing because the bill was named marijuana and nobody was quoting marijuana to cannabis. So there was just like a lot of sneaky legalese going on here. Ah. And after hearings from both lawyers from DuPont Chemicals and the Hearst newspaper groups, the marijuana taxation was passed in 1937. And the only authoritative voice that opposed Anslinger's campaign besides the AMA lawyer was... New York Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia. Oh, my God. Shout out to LaGuardia. Shout out to LaGuardia. He went to bat for marijuana. And he's he's secretly the best airport in New York. Secretly the best airport. Secretly the best mayor. I'm I'm on like a deep, like depressed Brooklyn people TikTok algo. Wow. Wow. Where it's like everybody that talks shit about LaGuardia is just gatekeeping LaGuardia for themselves. <laughs> LaGuardia is secretly amazing, and it's true. It's the best airport, Fiorello. And I can't imagine it was easy for an Italian man with the name Fiorello LaGuardia yeah. to rise to such prominence in that time period. Like, and then to go like, to bat for the ganj. Like, what a king. <laughs> what a king. He must have been a, 
Um, wait, do what's we know his, his birthday? birthday? I'm looking no. it up right now. Yeah, look it up. Um, but he like that's iconic to be that Italian. I oh feel like my we, god, maybe Rebecca? I should do guess what? his birthday. Gemini. No, no, no. Leo. No. Okay, I, I don't know why I would say guess out of 365 yeah. days. December 11th, same as the wow. other guy. Oh my god. Wow. Two Sag I have chills. Kings. I love Sag that. King. It's like I don't know if we've like have we said I mean maybe because I've imbibed too much, but like we're recording on 420. So this is yes, you have apropos said of something. That. <laughs> you have said that, Rebecca. Cool. I mean it is a drug. It does have some effects. <laughs> um, but I am dying that two Sag Kings. We're just like Two Sag Kings. Make America fun again. That was wow. what they were going for. Yeah, wow. keep going. You love to see it. You so, love to see it. Unfortunately, despite Fiorello's best efforts, the Marijuana Tax Act is passed on October 1st, 1937, and basically it's a tax act. So it requires importers to register and pay this annual tax of $24 a year, which, you know, at the time was a hefty sum. And they had basically a stamp affixed to each order and to make sure that, like, the proper payments were made and failure to comply would result in a fine of up to $2,000 and five years in jail. So no joke. You really can't mess around if you're not going by through the proper channels. It's become super expensive. It's become gate-capped, basically. And the same day that the Marijuana Tax Act goes into effect, the FBN arrests their first person for possession, and that's Moses Baca in Denver, obviously. Classic. <laughs> I mean, so much of this is just, like, affirming of stereotypes. I'm like, wow, Denver would be the first place. Um, Samuel Caldwell was uh, arrested for dealing. So we had a possession and a dealing arrest. Um, These were the first convictions under U.S. federal law for not paying the marijuana tax. Baca was sentenced to 18 months in jail and Caldwell to four years. So they weren't messing around. They really, like put this law into effect, arrested people the same day, and threw their asses in jail. Mm-hmm. Love that. I mean, don't love that, but... But, you know, definitive American yeah, policy. Definitive, for sure. So things start having to, like, get walked back a little bit. Um, in 1942, when the Philippines uh, falls to Japan, and the Department of Ag is like, wow, we need U.S. farmers to grow hemp for rope reasons and other fibrous <laughs> reasons. I didn't dig too deeply into why, but suddenly the U.S. <laughs> the is like, we reason, need you to grow hemp. The best reason to do anything is rope reasons. <laughs> you know, it's all just rope Next reasons. Next time someone's like, why are you out so late? I'm like, rope reasons. It's rope reasons. It's paper reasons. Like, my main takeaway was that, like, people getting high from marijuana was not the issue here. It was a threat to William Randolph Hearst's newspaper <laughs> and the DuPont's nylon and rope, baby. We had other places to get rope, but then the war breaks out, and the U.S. Army is like, "We need more rope, and it's going to come from from hemp." So basically, tamps, tax stamps for the cultivation of fiber hemp were issued, so people could grow hemp without having to pay this fine. Um, and that didn't actually change anything to the Marijuana Tax Act. They just basically gave out these stamps and. 400,000 acres of hemp were cultivated between 1942 and 1945, with the last commercial fields being planted in 1957. So the next big thing is that in 1965, Timothy Leary, who anyone who has dabbled at all in the realm of psychedelics (laughs) will know, is an advocate. The man needs no introduction to The man 
the myth, the legend, Tim O'Leary, uh, outspoken advocate for psychedelics of all kinds, was arrested while crossing the border from Mexico to Texas. Um, and he basically argues that the Marijuana Tax Act made it so he had to self-incriminate. He basically would have had to register with to show his intent to possess marijuana, which violated the Fifth Amendment to self-incriminate, which was pretty smart. Mm -hmm. So that goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ultimately rules that the Marijuana Tax Act is unconstitutional, and they overturn it. Unfortunately, we've got the Nixon administration, and Nixon's number one thing is that drugs are the number one enemy. So in 1970, Congress passes the Controlled Substance Act, which basically sets up federal regulation for the criminalization of drugs. And this starts the whole war on drugs, and from there... We get actually, I should say, Nixon appoints um, this Pennsylvanian Republican governor, Raymond Schaefer, as the head of the National Commission on Marijuana and Drug Abuse, which was later just referred to as the Schaefer Commission. Mm -hmm. And his goal was basically to review all the literature on cannabis so far and determine whether it should be classified as one of these controlled substances. And Schaefer's report, which was released in 1972, basically says there's no evidence that marijuana threatens society or causes violence and debunks all of these myths, but Nixon just like straight up ignores it. And it's like, that does not really fit my personal narrative. So we're still going to call cannabis a schedule one drug, which is crazy. I mean, he had all the evidence right there saying like, this was not on par with heroin. And Nixon was like, still don't like it. Not for me. So we have Nixon really to blame for most of this. Mm -hmm. um, Nixon, Nixon establishes the DEA the next year in 1973. And from there, it's just like one law after another. The, you've got the Anti-Drug Abuse Act. Um, it just escalates. And we get to a point where we're imprisoning Americans for nonviolent drug offenses at a disproportional rate. We've, we imprisoned 50,000 Americans between 19, in 1980 and over 400,000 in 1997. So it just really escalates and becomes a way to imprison Black and Latina Americans disproportionately for white Americans, which is something that we've obviously seen ongoing. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, we did finally start course correcting. In 1996, California legalized medical marijuana. In 1998, several more states followed suit, Alaska, Oregon, Washington, etc. And then in 2012, Washington and Colorado were the first states to legalize recreational cannabis. And obviously, that's opened the door for more states to follow suit. Mm -hmm. Speaking from the humble state of Connecticut, we have legalized and will go into recreational sales this July. So if you're one of my fellow nutmeg staters, hope to see you at the dispensaries. Very exciting times. But that's basically like the long and short of it. And I was simply shocked to learn this really came down to... American tycoons simply not wanting to compete with hemp and paper products. Like, this was a problem of paper. Well, really, I mean, paper and rope. to compete with hemp? <laughs> I mean, not me. I'm not, not I don't bet me. against the odds. Wow, yeah. that, that's a crazy story. A crazy story. I mean, and it's also just, I mean, it's, I think, weighing a bit heavily on me today just because it is 420, so I read a couple articles about, like, incarceration rates and stuff like that. It's like, how many people's lives have been inviolably altered by this? Like, I mean, my personal feeling is that after the first state legalized recreational, it should have been that all nonviolent drug offenses were excused. Like, it's just well, simply that's crazy. You're a communist, Rebecca. I mean, yes, yes, I am. But like, I also think it is so 
so fucked up that we have people suffering and sitting in jail for like petty marijuana possession. Like what a stupid thing. And the fact that like nicotine continues to be like such a normalized part of society and it has had so many more adverse effects, like just make it make sense. It's just like really hurts my brain. Nicotine but before, is crazy. Sorry, go Yeah. On. No, this is all Nixon's fault. Like, I'm prepared. I mean, and I'm a little Wait, sad at wow, FDR. that came out of nowhere. <laughs> well, it's not all Nixon's fault, but I think Nixon really, like, had the opportunity to do the right thing and didn't because it fit his agenda, which was just, like, bad move, Nixon. The silent majority. Ugh. But I wanted to just give you a few quick facts around 420. Um, and before I do that, do you have any guesses for where – why we celebrate 420 on 420. Okay, so I've actually Googled this like multiple times. And like one of the main things that keeps, that kept coming up and that's what stuck with me the most is that it was like random, it was like three random kids in a random place that were like, let's smoke weed after school at 420 every day. Because that's when school gets out. the nation. Yeah. So I looked up a lot of different like origin stories for 420. And it's been like- some people said it was like police code, like 420 is like what the police say yeah. if they see someone smoking. 420 happens to be Adolf Hitler's birthday. I don't know why that became a thing because Hitler was clearly like would have prevented a lot of issues if he'd smoked weed. Like, no, I don't think quote it, me on I it. I think but... Hitler's birthday is the 23rd. Is it? I mean, it's fucked up that you know that. I mean, you don't think I'm – oh, no, no, it is April 20th. Yeah, you're right. He's the start of Taurus. That's how we know. That's how we know. Toxic, toxic, toxic. It's toxic. I mean, he's the first Taurus man to do me wrong, but certainly not the last. Certainly not the last. <laughs> um, maybe not the first either. I mean, some people were, like, going so far as to think it was um, – Bob Dylan's song Rainy Day Woman 12 and 35 because 12 times 35 is 420. And I think as, that like, 420 is way older than that song, no? Uh, no. Oh, well, sorry. I'm confused. I got my Hitler and my Shakespeare confused. Hitler's birthday is wow. April 20th. Shakespeare's birthday is April 23rd. I mean, common, common mix-up. And therein hangs a tale wow. <laughs> about tourist men in general. But sorry, go on. But the point is, none of those theories are true. And your theory is correct it was a group of five students in <laughs> yes! 1971 I, we did it joe we, we did, did it joe san rafael high school uh obviously in california and they would meet at 420 uh outside of the campus's statue of louis pasteur which is my favorite like because <laughs> yes. that's what louis pasteur would want yeah and it absolutely they, is. 420 was just like an arbitrary time like that's when they all got out of school and could meet so like 420 became their code for like mm-hmm. let's you know go have a little 420 time which you love to see and then one of the students in this group of five dave reddix ends up going um to work with the grateful dead and he connects with Phil Lesh, and um, basically the Grateful Dead then does their whole thing and popularizes this whole term. And it was in 1990 that this group of deadheads in Oakland were handing out flyers that invited people to smoke on 420. And one of the people they handed the flyer what to year? was- 1970? 1990. This didn't <laughs> become like ubiquitous in like the popular culture until the 90s. So they're handing out these flyers as part of like a deadhead thing in Oakland. And Steve Bloom, who was a reporter for High Times Magazine, picks up one of these boots flyers. Boots on the ground. This like, man has boots on the ground. He's, he's like, this is the moment. The people. Yes. I'm here. I'm going to capitalize on this. So in 1991, <laughs> High Times prints this flyer basically referencing 420 and saying like this is 
the code for marijuana. And they did ultimately acknowledge that 420 was from these like high school students. And the students, I forgot to mention, called themselves Waldos because they hung out near a wall, which is the most stoner thing I've ever heard in my entire life. So they've gone down in cannabis history as the Waldos. And that is not because of Where's Waldo. It's because they just simply smoked weed at 420 by a statue of Louis Pasteur by a wall. And if that's not the most stoner thing you've ever heard, lose my number. I love that. Yeah, so I learned a lot. And I'm there's conspiracy, there's American capitalism, there's legislature. I mean, this story really has it all. And I learned a lot and wow. I hope you do. I mean, too. Rebecca, great job. I really learned a lot and it's not easy to teach me things. So you you gave me several new facts. I've really been dining out on that kid smoking weed at 420 after school gets out story and now i now that it's I know, affirmed you can go forth and tell everyone you know but now they know, know about the louis origin. pasteur now they yeah. know about the waldos the waldos are my personal favorite part because you the could just waldos see five so californian good. students being like yo we're the waldos now because we like this wall like so so dumb and i love it oh god yeah, it's everything well, to me. Thank you, Rebecca. I love that. And we did learn so much. You know, it's a right. long episode. I knew we had to do something that was a little on the lighter side, and yet we still clocked almost 90 minutes of potting. <laughs> we just can't stop potting. I think that if we were to cut out 30 straight minutes of me monologuing about the wedding industrial complex, we wouldn't lose any energy. So we'll see. We'll see how we'll long see. this ends up being. We'll see what happens in post. But we do have a very exciting episode for you next week. We don't usually like to do this, but I want to tease that we're going to talk about flight next week in all its forms. And I'm talking first to space. What, Rebecca? You've teased the people? Now stop. I'm going to stop, but I'm titillated just hearing myself talk about it. almost too titillated to continue. And it's making me realize that I have to do a lot of research because yours is. Going I to be am way stressed about the mine. research. I, I feel like we're gonna have to like. I kind of want to like see if I know any aeronautical engineers that can just do a celeb shot because I am worried about my lack of math and physics knowledge and talking about no, this it's okay. heavy topic. Like part of my fear of airplanes comes from the fact that I simply don't understand how they stay up. <laughs> so um, I'm very worried about method, talking about baby. this. I remember talking about that in ninth grade physics. It was like a part of our notes. Shout to out to draw. Mr. Salinger. No, well, shout out to Miss Wagner. We weren't all in honors, okay? Ooh. <laughs> Some of us were taking regular geometry. And yet you geometry, know more about physics than I do. <laughs> regular geometry and regular physics. Um, but yeah, I like I remember drawing the airfoil because it's like the flow of the it's like the same reason that birds stay in flight. Like that's the way that I don't understand that either. Are shaped. You know what? Cut all this out. I'm not. I'm not. I simply refuse. It might not make sense to the layman. It won't make sense to us either next week, but tune in to watch us struggle to figure it yeah, all out. It's going to be a good episode. We're thrilled to be back. Blair, to, thank you for making time in your very busy schedule to accommodate right. the manifestors. I'm actually getting married right after we hang up. That's wow. how engulfed my life is by weddings. You Just might be kidding. the backbone of the podcast now because I couldn't do this alone and I simply could not and, get you and to. And she, she could if she would. But I could if that, I would. I've got that zest, you know. And on that note, we'll and be back next night, week. We will see Thank you, you for, like, hanging tough with us. Yeah. We are happy to have you here. Send mm-hmm. us away, Blair.
Bye! Looking for more Manifest Destiny? Don't worry, we have a website. You can visit us at www.manifestdestinypodcast.com or connect with us over on Instagram at manifestdestinypod. Big fan of the show? Go ahead and leave us a little review on your podcast platform of choice. It would mean the world to us and allow us to keep doing whatever it is we're doing here. And as always, a hearty thank you to our beloved manifestors for listening to Manifest Destiny, a millennial take on the American millennium.